Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, you guys. This episode of Steel Wars features occasional coarse language. If you're around sensitive ears, move along. This is not the Steel Wars episode you are looking for. There are, however, many other family-friendly, clean episodes on our iTunes feed or steelwars.com. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. As well as the Making Star Wars Podcast Network. Hey, you guys. I know, it's the internet come to life. It's crazy, isn't it? It is so weird. Uh, Welcome to Steel Wars. I'm comedian Steel Saunders, and I do love Star Wars! We got, that's good, cool, yeah. We are at the Meltdown Comics Nerd Melt Theatre, and uh, I'm just soaking up the LA lifestyle. Love it. So good. There's a guy in the audience with a Rogue One Army t-shirt. So, some of your taste in entertainment's good. I'm not going to go either way. From a certain point of view... No, we're happy to have all podcasts represented here, mostly. Um, (laughs) What? Have you guys... I don't want to get into, like, spoilers too much. I don't want to get into spoilers too much, you guys. But have you seen the Porg furry toy that may or may not, you press its tummy and then it does things. It's all my nerd dreams in one. I cannot wait for Force Friday to see it at the other end of the aisle at 12.01 and I just slowly move towards it, just pushing five-year-old girl and seven-year-old boy out of the way and just having the one of four Porgs that are available (laughs) in that Toys R Us. It's going to be the best and that's what fandom's about. I'm inclusive with who I will step over to get to one of those porgs. But um, I'm not going to waste too much time up front because we have got so much to speak to today's guest about and I'm so glad you're here for it. And I'm thrilled. He is one of sort of the original people when I started this podcast that I would have loved to talk Star Wars about. So uh, guys, in LA, dreams can come true. (laughs) Please buy a t-shirt. Okay. (laughs) You can have multiple dreams, can't you? So uh, let's welcome, he is a uh, lifelong Star Wars fan. He's a director, he's a writer, he's a producer. He made one of many of our favourite films, Fanboys, except for Star Wars, of course. And he's behind the uh, Smuggler's Radio Plays at Star Wars Celebration. Please welcome to the stage, Kyle Newman! guys I've been dying to say this 
This combines several fandoms of mine. Hello, Newman. <laughs> get that a lot. Did you get that in the 90s? A lot in the 90s, yeah. At college, it was a lot of, hello, Newman. Okay, well, as you can tell by the haircut, I love the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm keeping it alive in, in every way. That's the next frontier, the 90s. Yeah, well, they're back, man. They're back. Well, I still feel 80s has permeated our culture still. You still can't escape it. Another two or three years, it's going to be 90s. 90s is going to be fresh. Really? I feel like it. You're going to be ahead of the curve. Man, I've got some just mint conditioned cargo <laughs> shorts ready to go. <laughs> I, I'm back. I'm yeah, back. Let's, let's do it together. Yeah, well, you know, do you form the Offspring tribute band or do I? I, I have no idea. I don't know. I do a lot of Creed at karaoke. Are they 90s or are they 2000s? What sort of karaoke? Creed. Oh, Creed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you normally save the confessions for the end of the podcast. This is going to be this is going to be an hour and a half of confessions. Yeah. Okay. Well, this podcast will bring you higher, and that's fantastic. You know, you've done so much. You've done the amazing fanboys movie. You've done the Smugglers films. You did. I, I watched it last night. The Return of the Jedi mini documentary. Yeah, that was fun. Did but, that for Entertainment Weekly. And but let's get down to what people really want to know about. Taylor Swift music videos. <laughs> you directed a Taylor Swift music video. How, do, how does that come about? Um, how does it come about? Um, I was finishing up this film. I did Barely Lethal. And I, it was strange that I was living at Taylor's house. That's another story, too. We were, uh, we were very close. That is actually now the story I want to know about. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing some work on our house, and we couldn't go back into it. And she's like, stay at my house. I'm going to be out of the country or you know, out of town for a bit. So we were staying there. It's only a few blocks away from our house. So we were just staying there. She came back to town. She's, I just finished my movie. And she kept saying, when are you done? When are you done? And I finished up that day. And she said, okay, now we're going to talk about something. I want, to do, want you to do a music video. I'm like, what song? She's like, you pick it. I'm like, okay, what do you, you want to do for it? She's like, anything you want. So, so it was this complete so, so you blank get, slate. So you get out the best of Creed CD. Got out the best, <laughs> popped it in. How about one of these? We looked at their whole videography. <laughs> we were challenged. She really liked this video I did for Lana Del Rey called Summertime Sadness. Mm -hmm. And um, not that we were going for that vibe, but it was something that was a little more, um, maybe less narrative, more montage, a little more poetic. So we just started collaborating with just me and her, no label, no any other obstacles. It was very, one of the most pure fun, simple collaborations ever. You know, it was really great. And so we would just share images, go back and forth until we kind of settled on like a vibe and a tone and just went from there. It was like, it was absolutely beautiful, simple, painless, which is what films normally, they're all painful, <laughs> horrible. Not in a bad way, but you just get scarred while you're making movies by bad people because you have 200 people. There's bound to be a couple of, are we allowed to curse? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. There's a lot of assholes <laughs> working on movies. Um, Still wondering when you're going to start cursing. So but, um, uh, <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but not that it's a not that it's a process I don't like, but it's just that's one of the inherent challenges of of making a film. There's all these phases to it, and then there's all these people that come in and out. Then there's also then your magnified egos. And when you're doing a music video, actually, I don't do a lot of unless I like like the artist or I, I know them. I can actually work with them. Um, and if you know, in, in that scenario, it's just really clean and pure. You know, you do it, everyone gets out of the way, you get what you need, it's two or three days, you can't, you don't really have all the people in your way to, to screw it up. Uh, with a movie, sometimes they're protracted experiences, 
like fanboys was a very protracted experience you know probably took seven years to get it to you know to theaters um the film I did after that, Barely Lethal, took about four years from when I got the script till when it was released, and that and they're independent, so you know you're doing it because you love it. It's not like you're you're on you're not getting paid until like the last six weeks when you're actually <laughs> actually making the movie. All of that is just speculative love labor. So is it sort of like the nature that a music video films for so short a time that less people can get involved? In with a it? sense, I mean, there's still that there's still that potential, but I think in the scenarios I have had with music videos, both with Lana and with Taylor. It's just, I was friends with them. They said, hey, like t Lana was like, do you want to do a video? We could shoot in three days. Let's come up with something. It was that quick. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like, go pitch to a label, give feedback, deal with managers. It's It was that simple. It was like, I had the job. Um, I also then did the tour for Taylor, so I directed a lot of the stuff with her in it on her world tour, which was last year. So that was really cool, you know, working on something that massive like 90,000 screen 90,000 people arenas and these huge you know screens probably the biggest screens anything we'll all of our projected on so it's really cool how is it that you know you worked one-on-one -on -one with her and then just you know for us she's almost like a tv character in this show that we watch you know yeah. on tmz or whatever how, what is that like to like see the person like behind the, the hype and you know see them in front of like the 90,000 fans and, and how that affects them it's it's weird. I guess just because of the nature of the business I'm in, I, you end up meeting a lot of people that are perceived famous or people, you know, gravitate towards them. But I don't, I just, it's it's weird. It just separates. It just I just see them as people with their own mm -hmm. ups and downs. Like they're hurt by, you know, people think it's okay to sling insults at people online or do it behind, you know, the, just like, oh, it's my, it's my, um, my handle, my avatar. Mm. They can take it, you fucking bitch. You know what I mean? Like they think that's okay. And it's not because people, no matter who you are, you still scroll through your stuff. You see it, you know, and it's, I mean, it affects people. It's hard. I mean, th like I said, it's there. Everyone is just a person. Yeah. There's a little bit different and yeah, maybe they have to put up some barriers w w with Taylor and say that there's huge barriers because everyone wants, you know, a piece of her. Like if you're at her, we went to visit her at her house in Rhode Island for a 4th of July and they were just like hordes of people at the bottom of her driveway all day with signs it was, <laughs> it was weird but i mean uh, on, i guess on her side she just goes about her normal business and if she has time then she stops and talks to people what sort of signs like arrows pointing to where the subway is like just like i love you this is my favorite song or just like you know just hearts and just people wanting to hopefully see her in her window or yeah because when you see those videos recently of george lucas you know with the autograph hunters and seems maybe they're not like why I would be there getting an autograph and that's there is a whole other business to that my wife's an actress so I see that a lot uh, going into and out of events there'll be people that are just autograph collectors see if, if she can sign eight things and you know they're gonna sell them all they're not like collect oh sign it could you please make that to Bruce Bruce my buddy Bruce really it's just like <laughs> quick sign eight you know it's and Bruce, that's what George it, Bruce is a huge fan of Jamie I is. have to say but that's what George is commenting on I don't know his reaction he might have been caught on a bad day um it was, it was a little bit extreme, uh, but uh, look, at least he stopped to sign stuff. Yeah. I could have just walked right by him and been like, go fuck yourselves, but he stops. Like, you know, and also, if I was him, with the abuse that people have, have hurled at him, I'd probably never stop again. Yeah. People are awful to him. I thought it was rad. 
Yeah, he's given us like one of the greatest things the last century. Like he's comparable to Walt Disney. And people are like, well, it wasn't perfect. It didn't suit my needs. You know, so people are so awful to him. I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I'm just, I'm shocked he does still stop. Yeah. But in a way, the, the biggest complainer about Star Wars is George Lucas. Well, it's, it's his prerogative to, and it's his, and it's his uh, right to. Yeah. Like, he should be, he, he said something, you know, he said, I'm the only one that's never really seen it which was a very astute comment because he didn't experience it like we did. He lived through the mire of it. And so it's, it's, you know, it's within his jurisdiction to complain however he, he sees fit about it. And it's within his rights to go tweak it and, and fix it however he wants because it wasn't like a perfect scenario, the creation of it. It was, you know, he felt, felt like 60% of it was what he, he wanted. And then he finally had the means and the lack of obstacles he could go back and actually, without studio interference, go tweak things and do stuff later, and then like a hindsight kind of thing. Um, so I, I'm like I'm behind special editions, and th- I don't love everything in them. I like 88 percent of it, and there's a couple of shots. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Did you need that? Um, maybe the most offensive is you know, the Ewoks wow. blinking. Ja- I know, no, ja- I know wow's the Ewoks blinking. Jaw wow's that might be. The worst. All I can hear is Ewoks blinking. That's I don't mind Ewoks blinking. I don't mind Vader. No, I don't mind all these things. But maybe Jawaza. <laughs> it's pretty bad. What, what, what do you think about... Because obviously he can do whatever he wants with it, you know, add things and stuff. But what do well, you not, think... Not anymore. I, yeah. think he was, I think he thought he was getting a, a more ingratiating scenario from Disney when he sold it and he thought, like, I'd be welcome back into it and they immediately, like, cancel Clone Wars and they kind of kick him out of consulting on the sequels throughout his outlines. I think... He, you could say to people like, well, he got $4 billion. You know, he donated most of it to charity. He's a f- pretty philanthropical guy. But I think he, he did get a, the short end of the stick there. I think he was duped by a lot of people. Mm. I, think I think he's pissed. Ignoring that, yeah. just with the changing, the changing of stuff, what do you think, like, as a creator, of sort of taking the original version off the market that, that the millions of people fell in love with? Well, the interesting thing about that is there is no original version of A New Hope. I think yeah, even that's a trick answer. It kept, it's, but it's not because in its DNA, it was it was changed weekly throughout its release, uh, and they kept changing it through VHS. Um, and if it's something that look, he did put it out there as a bonus feature on DVD, mm-hmm. and that was mainly to circumvent paying Marsha Lucas. <laughs> um, I think she has a high stake value in its release but because it was a bonus feature on a dvd i believe there was some way to get around paying her it wasn't the primary release so it was sold as special editions with a bonus um and i don't know if that's like an f you to her or what but i do know she has a large stake in that version ah interesting yeah but I, i would say back to the the core question of it is um it is still there Go bust out your VHS tape and shut up. You know what I mean? Like, it's there. Go, go get a laser disc. It's, it's not yours. You don't own it. Even it says it when you put it in the thing. It says you're basically leasing this from us. Yeah. So go fuck yourself. Like, <laughs> it's, seriously, it's, you could go watch it. You want it to be, like, you don't want, what people that complain about aren't complaining about the ability to see it because they can go watch it. Mm. People are complaining about the ability that there's something else that has supplanted it at the forefront of pop culture and they're scared by it. It's there for you to go see. So you can always go watch it. And I'd rather go see what the creator thinks is the best version. Mm. For better or worse, George has always given us 
the best stuff. And I like The Force Awakens. I think it's great, and I don't want to reduce it to anything by saying it's serviceable, but it's serviced in a way it checked off all these boxes. But there was no innovation in it. Star Wars was both innovative technologically at every phase of it. Uh, it's filmmaking techniques. There was nothing innovative about The Force Awakens. Narratively, it's not innovative in every way. It's not pushing mythology in any way. And if anything, you have the best concept artists in the world working for three and a half years designing a film, and they come back with not doing a different version of Yavin and something pretty close to the Death Star. And uh, I mean, I was like, this is what we get? You didn't even like oxidize the rocks on Jakku. It looks exactly the same to the point where my mom is like, oh, they're back on Tatooine. It's like, I'm not even gonna correct her because <laughs> it's just too big of a con I was like, What the fuck are we doing back on a planet that looks exactly the same? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, even the wardrobe, even the moisture, everything is the same. So there was no innovation in it per se. But I loved it. But George is the person that invigorates stuff with innovation. He's the one that's giving us virgin birth. He's giving us planets that look like cities. He's giving us uh, chosen one mythology. That's all void so far in this. You know, I, l I like what I've seen in the Last Jedi trailer. It looks like there's, there's hope that they're going to challenge the mythology mm -hmm. and actually make it mythological and go to a fable. But because that's what Star Wars is. It's, it's space fantasy. And it's its own genre. But I, don't, I didn't find any innovation in the film per se. Yeah. You're right about why people were upset about the special editions and stuff. Uh, it's, it's They're afraid. It's their own fear. Yeah. Because when there was like rumors that at Celebration they were going to announce they were going to bring out the original versions or the, the pre-special edition version. Yes. I'll, I will preface it with that just to, to cover all bases. And I was sort of just like, oh, hopefully it's got good bonus features because... I mean, I've got I liked, it. I like the I've edition that came out uh, a couple I've of years ago, that box set with the wonky paintings, you know, that like cardboard box set, and it yeah. had the bonus features. It had like Grandma, mm -hmm. A Wing Pilot, and all that stuff. Yeah, that was that was, I thought, sufficient. But I guess what I mean is, having them released again, like on day one, I'm not going to rush in and. But watch. do you really want it to go back and you want to see the the nasty matte lines on the tie fighter going? No, that's what I mean. Like, I've got it. Like, I, I've, got like it. I've got like, them. I don't on need hard to see drives. that on the big screen again. Just mm. like, <laughs> so it's like that's not like what he did was he he remained true to the integrity of the cut, the duration of shots, but then he made it more dynamic within the frame. And I think it's closer to the dogfight he wanted. So I'd rather see that. I'd rather see the ship blasting out of Tatooine. It's much more dynamic. You get that cool, um, you know, overhead shot in the middle, which makes it a, a smoother transition. I'd rather see the stuff that he put into. Empire Strikes Back. I like all that. Yeah. Um, Jedi like, rocks. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't love that. But that said, I, I'm not going to slight him for it or curse yeah. about it on the internet. But you've got you've got Jedi rocks. You've got a beaked Sarlacc. But I never forget when I first saw the trailer in a cinema and seeing the X-wing pan past with R2D2, and I was just in tears. I couldn't believe I was seeing that so dynamically. Yeah. It was heavy. What was that? There was that trailer for those special editions where it was like the you saw the TV. It's like for years you've been used to seeing it like this. Mm -hmm. and you see it like scream through. That was, and that was the point of it. It was bringing it back, but I think not just bringing it back because at that point it was '97. They'd only been out of theaters for 14 years. He had to do something a little bit different. And on top of that, these movies had to now coexist next to the most high tech films of all time. And I would still say the prequels, um, despite how you slight them, people. Uh, there still are some of the most technically advanced films. The effects in the prequels, some of the stuff in Phantom Menace is better than some of the stuff in Wonder Woman, which came out this year. Some of the stuff is better than most Fox superhero movies. If you look at the 
the, some of the dodgy effects in the X-Men stuff and the, and the or Wolverine origin movie. It's, there's some horrendous effects, and these are modern movies. And s the stuff that's going on in there, that and Jurassic Park have these impeccable um, visual effects because they're saying we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. And they spent the money committed, and he, he saw it through, all the different texturing, all the different shading. It's, you know, it's showing some signs of wear, but it's still way ahead of its time. Mm. Um, and I think that's why he needed those movies to almost l be able to live next to these new things he was created. Because they had to have some type of uh, visual connective tissue. And you can't go completely analog and completely digital. And I was like, like people also hate the, the prequels and they say they're all digital. But if you, Phantom Menace has more model effects in it than any other film in history by like threefold. There's more model work in that film than anything else. And if people just, you know, they fall and go, oh, it's just, it's all digital. And it's not, you know. So you look at those behind the scenes pictures of that movie. It's some really wonderful craftsmanship that gets totally thrown under the bus. The difference in, in, in those films is at the time it came out, they were selling digital to people. Digital effects. Oh my God, it's the best. So they were, they were selling everybody as a marketing tool, the most state-of-the-art digital CGI movie because that was cool in 1999. And, and then you look at 2015, Force Awakens, and they're saying, it's the most analog film you've ever seen. <laughs> and you're like, meanwhile, there's more digital on that than in any other Star Wars movie ever. Like, the whole third act looks like a video game. So it's interesting. It's marketing changes the way we perceive and then feel about it. But really, I mean, they're both well-crafted movies. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look at the promo stuff for, say, like Attack of the Clones or something and The Force Awakens, where it was they're both going in different directions about what they're bragging about. They're bragging about like Watto, and they're like, oh, he's, he's this great character. Yeah. He flutters his wings. You know, he's just talking like that. And then JJ's like, look at this guy. He's on stage. He, 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 like, he walks. There's a puppet. You know, like, like, okay, how does it either serve the story? That's all we really care about. And it was just like how they were selling it at Comic Con or at conventions. Yeah, I was, I was interested because when they started with that whole practical effects thing, like in at, at, at Comic Con, and people got offended by it. Like I was like, oh, this is sick. They're gonna they're gonna build sets. I liked it, yeah. yeah. But then there was another per like other people that I was sitting with, like Jason and that, that were sort of just like, are oh, you sort of shitting on the prequels a little bit with this? There was a uh, there was it was a I wouldn't even say it was subconscious. It was pretty clear that everyone was out there with an agenda to kind of these are not the prequels without saying that they're all saying prequels suck because they're digital. We don't have digital. That's every actor got up and was like, and we got puppets. You're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> you know, that was like they 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 rehearsed it for two days beforehand. Like, make sure you mention the fucking puppets. <laughs> make sure it looks like the dark crystal. <laughs> How much rehearsal do you need to remember puppets? That's all I can think about. <laughs> uh, let's go back to the beginning and, and what's your first memory of Star Wars? Oh, first memory. I don't remember the film per se, but I was in a uh, a parking lot after seeing the movie with my family and cousins at a drive-in movie theater. I was like a year and a half. I just remember all the energy after the movie, but I don't know if I remember the movie. And isn't isn't the entire drive-in theater a parking lot? What well, is? But then I think we like it cleared out and we went off to the side and everyone was like talking about it. So we left the the theater. We okay. went for like ice cream or something afterwards. And I just remember I was being like passed around by different adults and everybody was really excited. And then another time I remember I was in a I was at like a flea market. We left the flea market and we went to this store where they had Star Wars toys. My brothers were buying some. And I couldn't pronounce like normal names of humans and siblings, but I could pronounce all the characters on the back of a Star Wars card. So they were like showing me off to people like, who's that? And I was like, Hammerhead. And like, who's that? Walrus Man. And they were like, 
and I couldn't say milk, you know? So it was like... <laughs> So I was like, they trained me to just be like a Star Wars information thing. But you could say boy milk, which was I really confusing. Probably could. I don't know if I could. But it was, so, I, and I also, whenever my mom brought a, a Star Wars toy home, if it was like around Christmas or something, I could always sniff them out in the house. Like I, I think by three, I found every <laughs> hiding spot and I would just find them like behind the washer dryer or, or up in her, like a suitcase in her room. Or I would always find them. What a bizarre um, X-Men ability that is. I could just I could sniff out Star Wars toys. That's why when I drive by Toys R Us, I know there's nothing inside. <laughs> <laughs> Especially no vintage carded. Zuvio. Zuvio. Oh, you know what? Here's a funny story. I went to, it was Midnight Madness for Force Awakens. I was excited. I'm like, this will be like back in the day when I got let down at uh, Attack of the Clones. Um, so we, we went to this one in Burbank, and it was everyone was there. Seth Green was with us, and I brought Brian Burke, who produced the film, and Simon Kimberg was there with us. And we're maybe like 30 people back. Needless to say, we got in, there was no toys. They only, they only sent one box of 12 action figures to Burbank Toys R Us. So we get inside, and there was like a Zuvio, like 12-inch or something. It was always left. And I was, I was like trying to get information out of Burke. Like, who is this guy? He's like, I don't even fucking know. <laughs> What the fuck is this? And I was like, no, they made it. They made it. They made it. They made a three and three quarter inch. They made a twelve inch. They had like fucking Hallmark ornaments. And he's like, what is this? Are you kidding me? Like he didn't even know who the character was. That's how disconnected it was from reality. What Hasbro was doing and the movie they were making. It was and, like, oh my like, god! It's like wedding crashes or something. It's like you go to your wife, oh, who, who's who's that guy? And like, oh, I thought he was one of your friends. <laughs> yeah, and like literally, there was probably four hundred people in line. I remember by the maybe Seth Green was like the fourteenth person in, and he got one action figure. So everyone else was there just so they could have an ABC News van and be like, look at all these people here for Star Wars toys. We have none, you know. So they could say it's sold out in eight minutes. It's like yeah, because you shipped twelve. It was it was it, it was like. It was so awful. So I, I'm not going to get duped by that again unless there, there's like some guarantee. Like we will have enough action figures for everyone who comes at midnight. It's so weird because like in Australia, the same thing happened. And I was sort of looking at the space that they had to sell toys. And it's like, we only had this amount of toys. So that's all you could sell. How is it even profitable to open your store at 1201? Like, yeah. What's even the point of and then this? And what do you have for tomorrow morning at 901 when people show up like normal moms trying to buy... Because I remember the Phantom Menace, it was just walls. And, you know, they had, you a, whole, they had a whole aisle. Maybe you couldn't find, like, Darth Maul, but man, there was, there was Rick Ollie's. I, I started as a far nasty as rumor. We were at this one in, in uh, we were out here, I think, and I started this rumor because I was getting angry because I couldn't find anything that uh, there was a Steve Palpatine figure, <laughs> and that was Palpatine's brother. Because that doesn't know what he knew. Stevie Palps. So we're like, he's in the bin. People are going, where, where, where? People are digging through this bin. And we like just crazy this hysteria around Steve Palpatine. <laughs> like, no, there's two of them. That's how he dupes the Jedi. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Seriously? There's a figure in here? Yeah, he's friends with Doug Maul. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Maul. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. Didn't get his due. Hey, guys. I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far with Kyle. Trust me, it gets even better. And I'd love to be able to try to spread the word as much as possible. So if you are on Twitter, and you probably are, the episode announcement for this app for the first week will be pinned 
to the top of my Twitter feed is at Steel Wars. And if you have a moment, uh, quickly jump on Twitter and give it a retweet. That's how podcasts expand their audience and get to do cooler and cooler things. If you just get one extra person to listen to the episode, then you've done your part. You have potted it forward. And if you really like the episode, jump on iTunes and write us a sweet five-star review. It bumps us up the rankings, vouches to other Star Wars fans that we're doing good things, and makes your host feel warm inside. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of this great conversation. When you were young, like, what was the character that like you related to the films through? Hmm. I wouldn't say there was one that it was totally focused. I loved Yoda. I remember I had a Yoda birthday cake, 1980. It's one of those cool ones where, like, at the bakery, they, like, paint them on. It looks kind of, like, photo real. Maybe I a had airbrush. An, I had an Ewok cake. That's good. 2015. Yeah. I think I had an Ewok cake, yeah. Do <laughs> I, I, you know what? I had, a, I had a Kylo Ren cake, 2015. Tight. And it was, like, his whole head sculpted. It was, like, this beautiful cake. Yeah, see, but that's tougher than mine, so I feel like... I'm, yeah. I'm still I in didn't my ask Ewok. for it. It was a surprise. I was like, this is a pretty good surprise. Oh, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> I dreamt about it, but I didn't ask for it. And I may have cried when it made its appearance. <laughs> I could just hear that yub nub theme. What a good theme. <sighs> that George Lucas has now robbed me of. Sorry. Um, it's still on YouTube. I know. I know. <laughs> now, um, what about background characters? Who'd you like? I was always I like the aliens more than the troops. That's why I never I didn't get into the prequels in terms of all like the oh it's phase two armor. I was like whatever. I'm not like a car guy. I'm not a trooper armor guy. I like I like like aliens and creatures. That's how we learned to draw was Star Wars. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, so I was more into the. There was an old magazine cover for Cracked Magazine, I think, and it had all these cool aliens on the cover. It was like this this baby blue kind of thing. It was like maybe from '78. And I would always daydream about like Kenner actually making those action figures, and they still haven't. Um, so I liked all of those type of obscure characters. I liked all the creatures in Jabba's Palace. Um, recently, um, I have these affinities for characters that are awful. Uh, ben Quadraneros, like I hated him. I hate him. He looks like a California raisin. Um, it's maybe the worst character design I have ever seen in my life and then I started to feel bad for him (laughs) and then I got I literally Hasbro made the toy and Daryl DePriest was there at the time he's like we're making this toy for you and if it fucking flops it's your fault it's a peg warmer and it wasn't a peg warmer he came with like another pit droid and uh, he was pretty cool so I was glad I got I got that uh, achievement unlocked and then I would say the character I hate the most now is PZ Forcio have you seen this droid? It's like b- baby blue, this female droid. Oh, from The Force Awakens? Terrible. She has like these really big thunder thighs and triple shoulder pads. And she has like General Grievous's head on top of 3PO's body. <laughs> and we're supposed to like this? It's like, it's a hate crime for people with eyes. It's so awful. <laughs> Go Google PC4CO and barf on your laptop. The design aesthetic of her, it looks like what people in the 50s would have thought a futuristic vacuum looked like. It's so bad. It's, a, it's just like how bad can we make a protocol droid look and then fuck it up even worse. 
It's I, I don't know what anyone was thinking when they when they put that droid in the movie. It's not it's not even interesting. You know, there's so many interesting like I like R one G four. It's like weird. It's functional. It's in the background. Like there's cool droids, and then you get this, and it's just hideous. Which one's R one G four? You're out noting me. Um, he's in a New Hope, and it's like this kind of military green structure with no legs, maybe black tip. It was stolen from like another uh, like sci-fi. We're about to magazine in the fifties. Where's he hanging out? He's uh, outside the sand crawler. Ah, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just this green, bulky, huge thing. Looks like like a rounded phone booth. Yeah, <laughs> sitting next to the just the 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 dome, the Roomba. Yeah, yeah. What do you reckon the dome's? Uh, what's his? What's his job backstory? in the world? I'm sure there's a a Star Wars literary universe backstory for him. Does anyone know what the dome r- droid's job is in the Star Wars universe? No? Is that the one? He has a couple arms, right? Nice. No, oh, just the dome. Yeah. It's like a big dome, like five foot. Um, Be fun to ride on. I don't know what he does. Yeah. Maybe he pops open. Oh, that'd be Put good. Put your groceries in him. He follows you home. <laughs> that'd be good. Pops open. There's a, there's a herd of porgs in there. That'd be great. <laughs> the, um, how We were talking about porgs at the top. And when I watched that Return of the Jedi little mini documentary, your wife did come out as an anti-Ewokite, which I'm not going to judge, but uh, how are Porg's going down in your she family? Has a, she has an Ewok shirt. I don't know if she dislikes them. Hey, man. She may have I, just I can been, only believe what I see She may have just been ripping the them in, in the moment. Um, we're a pretty Ewok-friendly house. We like the Ewoks. Okay. Says that now. When I actually, like, I actually think Return of the Jedi is the boldest and I know people hate Return of the Jedi. A lot of people do think it's cool to hate it. Uh, I actually think it's the boldest film of all of them and maybe the boldest film, one of the boldest independent movies because he had everything teed up to go make a safe sequel. And he said, I'm going to take the greatest villain of all time, Darth Vader, and I'm going to humanize him. And then I'm going to task myself with creating someone even scarier and more menacing. He didn't have to do that. He could have saw it through with Darth Vader. But he actually made it... They put all these extra challenges in front of himself. When you when you look at it like that, you're like, wait a second. They took Darth Vader, who in 1982 at that point was the pinnacle of villainy, and mm-hmm. like, we're going to humanize him, and we're going to go challenge ourselves to make somebody even scarier, more menacing, and different to supplant that evil. And stuff like that is not easy, but would you see them doing that in new movies? Would, that, would they play it safe? Or would they actually do things like this? Would they think like George does? And George has that, like, inventive creative spirit where he's just going to go for it so i actually think like the ending of return of the jedi is vastly misinterpreted too and from my few conversations with him i feel like i'm you know it's synergistic with how he feels about how people have interpreted return of the jedi just, why just, he hates the eu just to be clear you yeah. are you are at this point name dropping george lucas conversations only there's only been several okay in my life and i remember like every beat of all of them Okay, no, I just wanted to make clear that when you said with my conversations I've had with him, that was... I they're, just wa- very, they're very few and fleeting, but one time I did, we did talk about Return of the Jedi. Okay, the while, while, of while you were saying, I swear this poster's for me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he signed it. I had him sign my chest. I took my shirt off and he signed it. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, if you're watching this audio, I only podcast naked, so... <laughs> I'm up here with steel. No pants. Enjoy the audio. It's very revealing. 
Um, it's, no, it's, so it's, 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 it's if you want a mental picture, think 1996 Power of the Force 2 toy line. <laughs> There's two things that are interesting. There was a recent EW article, and in it it said that um, you, you'd commented on it. It was Ben and uh, Luke. There was like a comment that Luke was sure that Ben was the chosen one. I was like, it was in the EW. I was like, Ben Solo's the chosen What are you talking? What are you going on about? Like... It sounds like there's some reinvention of this of the mythology, maybe reevaluation, which is cool if they're going to challenge it in a good way, as long as it's not glossed over. But Luke, at the end of Return of the Jedi, um, he rejects his elders. Everyone has told him, everyone he trusts says, you have to kill Darth Vader. Yoda and Obi-Wan are the two greatest figures in his life that have shaped him. And he has to say, you know what? They're wrong. And, Darth, and the Emperor is wrong because he only sees two outcomes for this combat. He, and he neglects there's a third, which is love, familial love. And um, Luke adheres to this, too. And Luke and uh, Anakin are the only two people that deviate from Jedi or Sith. And Luke unlocks his father with that love. And his father, you know, reciprocates it and balances the force and fulfills the prophecy. And, uh, you know, ironically, he had to decimate all the Jedi before he would, you know, eradicate the Sith. And that's what the Jedi couldn't really see. And neither the Sith could really perceive that the balancing would then cleanse Palpatine, and it creates this perfect blank slate. Mm-hmm. And Luke, then in the EU, I mean, you can't have him do what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to then try and go back to the to the Republic, try and fit in, and realize, you know what, I don't belong here. Like you're going to go set up a new government, and I'm not part of it. Like I can't really, I can't uh, devalue my father's sacrifice and the balancing of the Force by going to create new Jedi. Luke wouldn't go create a new. Uh, temple, and he wouldn't go bring on new students, and he wouldn't give them mullet braids, and he wouldn't go give everyone brown robes, and he wouldn't go do everything that his father and he deviated from. And the EU wouldn't sell books that way. So for from 1990 onward, they were selling Luke's further adventures. Uh, Luke making making basically mistake after mistake and slapping his father's sacrifice in the face like with every book. And that's really how George sees it. Because like, did you watch the fucking movie I made where he balanced the force <laughs> and it's over? You know, in a sense, that's it. He wouldn't go then, go, I'm going to create a hundred more little people that can go fuck up the Force. That's like, and then you see Force Awakens. Like, I always thought it'd be cool if Luke went home uh, after that. He probably went back to doing the only thing he knows what he, to do, which is his whole life. He's a moisture farmer outside of the three years adventuring with these people, two, two years and ten months. He goes back to being a moisture farmer. He has a wife and a kid. And he doesn't tell them what he does. So what you may be saying. Like, unforgiven. Is it when he got to Acto? There was no oceans around it, and he did such a good job. <laughs> he populated it with water. No, I, I, so I, that's, and then I thought he would have been reingratiated into it because of a mistake. Leia has offspring, and they make mistakes, and then he's pulled back in. I thought it was an interesting choice that they make Luke make the mistakes, and now I'm hearing that Luke thought Ben was a chosen one, and I, so there's a lot of perplexing things coming out of it. I want to see where they go with this stuff because it doesn't totally jive with the GL version, and I'm more in the GL. Yeah, knows best. It, it'd be, it's sort of weird to have Luke Skywalker know about the Chosen One. It, like, just know about How would he concept. know about it? Yeah. Did, I, you know? Also, like, you know, people gripe with midi-chlorians, and I, I don't mind that stuff because there's no reason for in the A New Hope or in Empire Strikes Back for Obi-Wan to sit him down and be like, this thing is called midi-chlorians. You know, he doesn't need to tell him that. He just needs to say, you're the only fucking hope. There's that's no it. need for anyone to tell anyone Your father that. is this. This is all that matters. Like, he doesn't need to go, let me get a blood sample. But in the nature of what was going on in The Phantom Menace, you have 10,000 years of Jedi. Mm-hmm. They'd have a biological, fundamental understanding of what made them different from other people. 
at least to quantify it enough to say these people are worthy of being trained and these people are not. And that's not to devalue the mysticism of it. And so I always find it interesting when people push it into this argument where like, he totally took the fucking mythology and mysticism. And you're like, no, he didn't. Like, there's still biology at play even though we, you know, we're talking about spiritualism. Um, so, and I, so I feel like a lot of what happens in the original trilogy is because it's the third, it's the second half of a story. It's on this precipice of drama. It doesn't need all that. But you're talking about act one of a movie with Anakin being this little boy, and he needs to be able to go back to a council and quantify it and say maybe he is a virgin. So maybe there is something special, and he does have this extreme midi-chlorian count. That stuff was also reshot. Those were additional shoots, the stuff with Qui-Gon doing the finger. You know, it was on like a Sony F900. That was like the first digital stuff. He went back in the second round of shooting and, and kind of experimented with what he would shoot on for episode two. And then um, the stuff on the on the platform in Coruscant is when he sits him down and he's like, Master Qui-Gon, what's a midi-chlorian? You know, that whole like, yeah. bit, that's all added in. Because it felt like, probably felt like without that, you're like, why is he picking this kid up in the desert? Like, how does he know? You know, just going on Shmi's word that he's like a virgin birth. So um, all these things, like there, there's reasoning behind why George does it. You know, maybe it, maybe they're not as visual or emotional, but like, everyone's like, where's the Han Solo in, in the prequel trilogy? Well, it's like, there shouldn't be a fucking Han Solo. He's the, he's the physical representation of nihilism. He's the frustration. He's the, he's the embodiment of everyone that's been oppressed for 20 years by a government. So why would he be sitting around when everything is ornate and perfect and the wool's been pulled over their eyes and there's ships that are bright yellow with chrome on them that just serve like pomp and circumstance and not purpose? Like... There's no need for Han Solo. So he makes these choices which are pretty smart. Like he could have went back and said, oh, I'm going to make a Han Solo type for everybody because they want Han Solo. But he doesn't do that. He's smart enough not to do that. He's smarter than us. And everyone get, hates him for it. You know, but if there was Han Solo, we'd be shitting on him like he's Dash Rendar. Be like, fuck you. You know, Dash Rendar. My, you know? So he's way smarter than all of us. And, you know, it's, it's probably our, our own inability to think like he does that makes us so frustrated with him. Dash Rendar, he, he gets a hard... He gets a hard, you know, history is not kind on Dash Render, but I remember rocking into Toys R Us and he had the fold-out gun and I was like, yeah. <laughs> She's or Yeah, and he had a... He had underrepresented. Like a, he had a top that was quilted. It was it was pretty sick. The quilted was a big thing mm. in uh, Return of the Jedi too. Everybody was quilted. Even on Tatooine, everyone's got the the quilted padded... <laughs> yeah. It was tops. It was like that year's skinny jeans. It's a jeans. little warm for tattooing, guys. It's 140 out here. You got a quilted top. Hey, once you quilt, you can't go back. Trust yeah. me. Yeah, trust me. So, t- tell us a, b- a bit more about your discussions with George Lucas. It was just. It was. It was. This one was very brief, and it was just asking about Return of the Jedi, and you know, kind of get into the, like a little bit what I was talking about. And he's like, "Yeah, you're, you're more or less right." He's like, "You're very close." So I don't know what I was off about or what's close, but he's like, "You're very close." As I was trying to get to the sense of why he doesn't didn't like the books and why the books were such a bastardization and deviation from the way he saw it. I was trying to also find out where it would, would have went had he done things. Um, now there's no denying that the force would have, um, come back into play. Uh, but how it came back into play, I think is, is, you know, where I see difference between what, what JJ chose to do and what, how he was going to re integrated into the mythology you know um i'm not a big fan of flashbacks either i feel like they're kind of like clunky ways of telling stories and they're not really star wars vernacular visual vernacular mm-hmm. it's not part of yeah how you should tell a star wars story and i hope there's no more flashbacks and 
in this film. Um, it just doesn't feel right. You know, I mean, there's no need. Did, did uh, when you're reading classic Greek mythology, you know, it's like you're reading the Aeneid. Did they go back and do flashback? <laughs> no. Like you're reading like classic Disney uh, princess stories or tales. You're like, where's, oh, we're going to go back. We're going to do a flashback now. Earlier that night, Ariel was, no, they don't do, like tell the story. It's such a, the way Star Wars is told and it's its own genre. It, it's, it's very um, objective. You're not putting a lot of POV into it. You step back. He shoots characters wider. There's not a lot of headshots and he lets the story play out. But I, I guess maybe one defense of the flashback is that in Revenge of the Sith, there was a flash forward. It's a vision. That's what Ray's thing was as well. Was it a force back? There I, was I a vision. Know. I don't know. I don't know if it was a... Uh, maybe. And I, well, it was, it was, it was uh, triggered by that. I'll give you that. And here's one thing I, I do think about that's interesting. And this is how I perceive Kylo Ren, is that the reason he is so intent on the lightsaber is because he he probably has no communication with Vader or Anakin. He touched the helmet. And when he touched the helmet, he had a similar visceral experience um, that he has then dwelled on and shaped himself. And uh, he wants that lightsaber because he knows by touching it, he would have had that same experience Ray did, mm. but shaped for him. That's his only communication with Vader. He's not had, he doesn't have any privy... Um, you know, special open line of force communication with his grandfather. So I think that's the, why he covets the the these the Vader um, artifacts. Yeah, because uh, so many of the theories around you know like who Snoke is and stuff, and 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 his discussion <laughs> with uh, Darth, Vader, you know, like his Kylo's sort of communication with Darth Vader, like really dismisses the end of Return of the Jedi. Yeah, and it's like it's Anakin's like he got redeemed. He was sorry. He's not dark side anymore, you guys. Well, there's a book called Bloodlines, which uh, publishing put out. And Bloodlines is interesting. It's one of the better ones they put out. Um, and Leia is a senator. And she's kind of put in this position. She's aspiring then to become like the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And there's her rival turned friend who puts out this information about you know, her affiliation, her connection yeah. to Vader. And I was shocked when I read it because... He puts this information out, and it's maybe three or four years pre-Force Awakens. So Ben uh, Solo is like 26 years old, and then he finds out on the Holonet news that his dad, or his, his mom's like grandfather, father is Darth Vader. Meanwhile, he's off gallivanting with Luke, and Leia's preoccupied with, oh my God, what's Ben going to do when he finds out? And he's like a 26 or 7-year-old man. I thought this happened like way earlier, and that Luke went away much more before this happened. Um, and maybe you know Han was away longer, and so it puts the timeline in this very. It was max five years before the movie. Yeah, it was very interesting. I was like, really, that's a bizarre choice because it then changed the ramifications of, you know, who Ray could be. Because I felt like, well, if they had Ray, um, or she was very young when this happened to Kylo, they would spare her the experience and then get rid of her. Um, I still. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
I feel the DNA in The Force Awakens of Rey being a solo. It's all over the movie. You know, it oozes it, and then you can tell they cut it all out three months before the movie and changed it. And that's why Ryan probably rewrote his script for so long mm-hmm. before they shot it. Um, it's just all over the film. Yeah, and they didn't I, really cover their tracks well. I always think when you watch it, it's like there's hints for things that were meant to be there in another version. Yeah, like, what's and your name, ha- kid? And she's like, Ray. And he's like, oh, shit. And he's like, you need a job? And he's like, giving her a gun. And there's this symbolic stuff with her and Chewie flying yeah. the ship, and she knows the ship better than him. Yeah. Like, there's all this stuff in the film. And, and finishing sentences and that sort of stuff. And the, at the end of the novelization, the Alan Dean Foster novelization, even says Princess Leia, you know, they embraced the way only a mother and daughter could. And then Kylo Ren, Snoke's like, Perhaps Kylo Ren was right about the identity of the girl. And that's why he's like, Who, what girl? Like, mm. he's concerned, like, there's, like, something more to this person. Not like she's just some rando they picked up in a desert. But there's actually something more. She's had visions of Octo, like, her whole life. Um, so, I don't know. There's so many vestiges of what I think was there. And I feel like J.J. just defaulted to this idea that, well, I just liked it when anyone could be a Force user in A New Hope. So fuck all this and got rid of it all and said, let them, everyone else after me figure it out. It was almost like that. It felt like there was like some severe editing going on at the last minute. What are you rather? That anyone can... No. Yeah. No. This is, a, this is like Greek mythology. Yep. It's, you have to mess with generations. Like what's beautiful about the prequels and the, and the original trilogy is that they're rhythmically going through the same thing, Luke and Vader, uh, Luke and Anakin, and the choices Luke's make Luke makes when you've seen the prequels and you're like oh my god is he going to fall into these same mistakes look at Luke going to Cloud City is akin to Anakin going back to Tatooine for his mother it's like personal connection there's these direct parallels and George was really smart about how he paced it and I don't know if I buy totally into the ring theory like it's interesting but he's very smart and and there's you know there's requiem type elements to it but uh, the sequel trilogy should should be that it should be another rhythm or manifestation on on family and this is the first time anakin can be the grandfather or the father he never was yet i think we're hamstrung by this perception like, why well, hate hayden christensen well it doesn't mean he shouldn't be in this fucking movie as anakin skywalker for one scene that with like a great director he wouldn't make him awesome yeah like it should absolutely be anakin skywalker in this trilogy somewhere you can't make the other six movies about vader and then ignore him just stick a helmet in here and say that's enough he's the fucking central character in this whole mythology let him come back and have words of wisdom for his offspring or his grandchildren um I, so i think it's a cop-out i think it's because people are like well we don't want to put hayden in here because it'll remind people of the prequels it's like you know what forget all that go tell a good story tell the story that's meant to be told and stop worrying about all that shit and people will still show up yeah like if you make like a dope film and then you have that easter egg or whatever of Hayden Christensen yeah. that sort of reignites interest like in those see, other films like I want to see Yoda and Obi-Wan them. in this as spirits they mm. should be um, there's no reason why Luke shouldn't still have some type of open communication or if Luke's saying I'm going to end the Jedi I think that he's got to have the balls to then go say it to if there's like a spirit council who's going to be it's over well in the trailer when he says you know I only know one truth yeah it is my I, I would not be putting any money down on it, but I would love for the camera to pan around and there's Ghost Yoda going, oh, really? what really? a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you've got this like impression of uh, that he's speaking to Ray, but it would be awesome if it yeah, was... Yes, it, it could have been that. And it, you're right. It's, it's, but that's what it should be. Luke should... But I also feel like that's, this is coming, this observation is coming 30 years too late. This is something Luke probably realized in the fallout of the Battle of Endor. Like, 
wow, like they told me I had to go kill my father and this guy's telling me strike him down and replace him. And instead, my father and I were totally different. We chose something different that's neither Sith nor Jedi. And in the end, we saved the galaxy. Like they wouldn't adhere to either, you know? So I, it's interesting that Luke's going gray, but I also feel like it's weak that it took him 30 years in their new narrative to figure this shit out. I don't know. <laughs> I hope it's good. I mean, look, I have great faith in it because these are all smart, talented people making it. Uh-huh. But it's just like a few little character choices where I'm like, oh, all right. Well, I mean, as long as they get back to that point, which I feel like Last Jedi is a recalibration in a sense because right in that trailer, they're talking about how we're going to – we're getting into the end of the Jedi. We're getting into – she says, I see light. I see darkness, balance. So I, th- I think it's finally um, migrating to where it needs to be. And but the Force Awakens was a perfect reintroduction for what it needed to be too, in terms of a pop culture thing, less less in terms of story um, ramifications. I, I think maybe Luke began to get a bit of a vibe that the Jedi should end when he watched his wrist fall down that tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, yeah, probably not worth it. Yeah. Let's be done. I've lost Let's my lightsaber done. anyway. Yeah. Who cares? Let's end it. Um, how hard is you? Know, you're a filmmaker. Like we're talking about, like all these intricate things, these these hints that were maybe in a different version of a script. Like you're juggling, you know, hundreds of people to put this thing up on the screen for two hours after a couple of years that we're all going to stare at for the end of time. How hard is it to get it right? Like how shocking is it that movies are good? Well, I I think what's going on with the last two uh, spinoff movies are testaments to getting it right. I think um, ultimately. They will spend the money to make sure the movie's good, period. They're not going to be a Batman versus Superman scenario where, like, we're going to put it out, we're just going to get what we get. Um, they're going to say, we're going to make this great. And they committed to that with um, Rogue One, you know, $107 million later or whatever. They made it great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also, in my opinion, when I saw them announce that they're going to do these different stories and different genres. And I was like, well, Star Wars is its own genre. I keep saying that, but I firmly believe it's its own genre. And what I feel like they did with all the money they spent on Rogue One was they had to recalibrate it back to, it feels like a Star Wars film. It doesn't feel like Band of Brothers or whatever they're saying they were making. It ultimately feels like a Star Wars film, right down to the Giacchino score. Um, I feel like Han Solo, they probably were trying to make something a little different too. And then maybe they got down this path and like, well, this doesn't jive with what we saw. And I was having an argument with somebody who's a very, you know, big uh, producer. And they were like, well, of course they're going to do a little more comedic with Han Solo because it's safer. You know, that way you're not putting him right on a pedestal opposite Harrison Ford and and commenting on it directly. I think that's a safe way. That's a studio way of doing things to say we're going to just do it this way because it's easier. Han Solo as a character in these three films, and it should be plotted like three films, that by the end of that third film, he feels very close to the guy that's sitting in a booth um, in a Mos Eisley cantina. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't start there. He's got to feel something. He could start more optimistic like Luke. The galaxy's in front of him. I can do whatever I want here. But the, the, the nature of the Empire oppressing him, the nature of like people he thought were his friends screwing him over, his mentor throwing him under the bus, whatever happens, by the end of that first film, he should feel like defeated that he's got a friend. That's all he's got. And like, fuck it. We're going to take on the galaxy, Chewie. But fuck the system. I was a good guy. I was playing by the rules. But why do I have to play by the rules? That's where that movie should end. Setting him up for two more movies that get him to like the point where we meet him as like the 30-whatever-year-old guy in the cantina. Do you think like the greatest Star Wars fandom is nuanced enough to appreciate him go through that? Yes. 
Well, I don't think it's it's. This is like just this is the base character thing. They're going to be their own adventures, and yeah. this movie will be its own thing. But um, that to me is the most interesting thing. Do you want to see the same character for three years, or do you want to see a character that how he becomes Han Solo in the first film? How he becomes the guy who's going to drop his cargo and be like, "Fuck, and I ain't going to lose my neck over this." You know, I'll figure it out another day. I'll pay him back. You know, whatever. We'll skip town and we'll make money elsewhere. Should we? Like the Han Solo in the first movie, I don't think the kid we meet should be that guy. Mm. You know, that's not interesting to me. Um, nor do I think Han Solo is a funny character. Well, he's just he's sarcastic and he overcompensates because he's an oaf. I, I, I kind of think like the perfect like blueprint for doing like prequels and stuff which, you know, this is a prequel, is Better Call Saul. Have you been watching that? I haven't seen it, no. On paper, you know, Saul's the the, yeah. the quick-talking lawyer. It, it sort of seems like it's going to be a goofy comedy that's just going to rely on his catchphrases and stuff. But it's such an interesting character study about how a guy gets, like, pushed and shoved by the system to end up like this guy that doesn't give a shit. That's a lot That's a lot about, I think, formulative who Han Solo is. It's a system. Because he doesn't know there's an emperor pulling the strings and about force or anything. He just sees it as, wait, why is it so hard for a guy like me to just to do what I need to do to survive? Everyone's screwing me over. That's why he gets pushed into the black market. He gets pushed into backstabbing people. It's not the choices he would necessarily make on instinct. But the circumstances are going to shape him to do that to survive. And that's the man we meet by the end of this first movie to then go on his adventures with Chewie. And I would like them to feel more like the Brian Daly stuff. And ultimately, it goes back to the same thing. These are, um, it's in the tone of Star Wars. We don't need to go changing the tone here. Like yeah. All these movies should congeal together. Like Rogue One leads up to literally like eight minutes before A New Hope starts. And they're talking about we're going to make it a different genre. Like, chill out. Like, these need to have connective tissue. You know, and ultimately they did but I think at the cost of a $107 million experiment. Yeah, I totally agree with that premise that, you know, at you know three years ago, two years ago, Kathleen Kennedy's like, we're going to go off in all these different directions. But then when you watch the film, you're like, yeah. oh, it's not Star Wars. But so do, do it 10,000 years ago, and then you can deviate from the tone. Mm. Do, do a movie 50 years later, and you can deviate a little bit. Um, I actually thought it would be interesting if Leia wasn't CGI in... Uh, Rogue One, then you have a young Han Solo, and you integrate Luke somewhere, and you can actually then have three new characters that are organically introduced, a la Marvel, and you could do movies with them after Return of the Jedi because you've eased us into liking them and connecting us to them. But, um, I mean, I don't know what their direct plans are, but I do think there's more tonal deviation allowance for movies that are further removed from the Roman numeral timeline but stuff that connects right up to it that's like three point you know episode you know 3.9 you know you can't really afford yourself those luxuries yeah hey guys just a quick note that steelwars.com is about to start shipping the new batch of steel wars parody tees there is for you streetwear fans a very supreme influenced the force t-shirt a hot wheels inspired I'm Ray's Parents Tea is a tribute to Blue Milk, Yarvin University, and we are also taking pre-orders for the next batch of Your Snoke Theory Sucks t-shirts. Plus, there are sticker packs for days, and all t-shirt orders go out with a Your Snoke Theory Sucks lollipop. And upon purchase, you instantly get 10 of our most popular classic premium downloads. All this and so much more, well, not that much more, at SteelWars.com.
talk a bit about fanboys. Sure. Any fanboys fans in the house? Nice. How you're doing a comedy based around Star Wars, and Star Wars is such a well-mined source of comedy that sometimes you sort of think there's nothing left. Do you know what I mean? Everything's yeah. been milked. Going into it, I, I sort of have a reason why you shouldn't have been concerned, but was that a concern going into it? It was, probably not as much as it would have been if we made it now. One of the limitations was that you know, it was set in 1998, so we couldn't really talk about the um, prequels without a little bit being self-aware, like Seth Rogen's Jar Jar Tattoo, mm-hmm. or you know, there was like a Jar Jar ILM gave me on the laptop when they break into the laptop. Are you know the what if it sucks line at the end? There's little things like that, but for the most part, you ha- we had to be removed from knowledge of the prequels because, you know, it was a time where these characters didn't know anything about it other than optimism about them. Um, so we're in a little bit of a of a smaller box to play with because, you know, 1980 it was, it was simpler. It was pure. I think it was just only optimism. There weren't people like doubting it, and a fandom was very different. Fandom was much smaller. You know, right now we have zombie movies and TV shows, Transformer movies, endless superhero movies, DC, Marvel. Like, fandom has exploded since 1998 when this movie was set. Even Harry Potter wasn't around then. Um, I remember the studio that was putting it out, even though Harry Potter didn't exist then, they were like, let's put Potter references in and the reshoots. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) I'm like, Harry Potter didn't exist. Like, fuck you, semantics. You know, you're like, semantics, he didn't exist. Who's going to notice in a nerd comedy? Who's going to pick up on that? So there was stuff like that where people that don't get it were also chiming in and we we had to protect it and stay very true to 1998 and who these guys would be and what they would know about it and how they would feel about other franchises. Like I like Star Trek, so I have nothing against Star Trek. Um, William Shatner came to set and he was like, what's all this about a rivalry? I'm like, are you serious? I thought he was kidding. He's like, yeah, why are you antagonizing? I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're going to incite something. And I was like, what? He really didn't think there was like a rivalry. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. You know, but he was cool. I mean, he's like, whatever you want to do. But he was like, this is interesting though. This, the, the fans don't get along. And I was like, okay. But I was like, all right, they really do. Like a lot of times they don't. I mean, they're, they're very territorial. Star he's Trek is. He's just been in his Shatner bubble the whole time. Yeah. Because like I guess he gets showered. Everyone loves Shatner, yeah. so he no one's like "fuck you." We hate Star Trek. They're always like, "Oh, William Shatner," you know. So he's in that bubble. Um, so that was interesting, you know. And but there there were these rivalries. I felt like within science fiction then, and you know, there was like there was like a nerd hierarchy. It was like Star Wars was at the top, and maybe Star Trek, and then. There's also like Farscape fans and Babylon 5. And that's what you were talking about. That was like the spectrum of nerd back then. Mm-hmm. Like people were even revisioning Doctor Who or trying to make it cool. And it's it's only li- just a little bit cool now. It's never been like that. In my opinion, it's been a little weird. Um, but Star Wars was like the, the T-Rex, you know, is the apex predator of the fucking nerd kingdom. And there's nothing coming close to it. <laughs> I know they've tried to manufacture that with all these other things. You know, like, get out of here, Divergent, and Hunger Games, and Twilight. Like, they, I, I don't understand why people think they're going to get lightning in a bottle because they, they largely miss the fundamental point of what, what George did. I mean, he's like a cultural archaeologist digging deep into, like, our subconscious and making mythology. 
and then these other people shit out a novel and they turn it into a movie and like it's insta franchise like that's not how it works yeah you know and i mean look at transformers you're like I mean, it was a cool show in 1986. Do I have to look at Transformers? Let's please not. But, like, what have they done since 1986? Like, it's awful. It's, it's absolutely awful. Mm. And I don't like saying that about anything, but, like, it's almost unwatchable how bad it is and how much they don't get their, even, like, their, their core material. What is their core audience? Like, they've just swept it all under the bus. They've made something that doesn't make any sense to anyone. And, but yet it makes money, and they're like, it's a legit franchise. Like, I... I Nothing will have the like the potency or the magic of of Star Wars because they don't have George behind it. Maybe the closest is a J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. That's, that's about it. Um, because the like the theme of the movie, you know, it's got such a an amazing premise. Do you know what I mean? Which which now is is real life. Like the, the premise of the film is that there's a Star Wars film coming out at the end of the year, and someone's got a terminal illness. And they're not going to get to see it. And yeah. I, I actually have to ask, what, what was it like when that, like that became reality? We're leading up to the Force Awakens, and there was a, a man that was, was going to pass away, and he got shown the film. Like, how did that make you feel? I mean, it's it's important. It's emotional, and I think it's something. If you could say it's trivial because it's a movie, and like, oh, like the nerd's going to get. I saw people commenting on it, and like, well, who cares? In a very callous way. But this is something that was very important in this guy's life. And part of, like, you're, this guy's going to die, and he's transitioning to whatever phase of his life is next. And it's about whatever gives him some form of peace or consolation. And so, yeah, it's a movie. But it's a movie that means more than just a movie to a lot of people. And for him, it was very special. So I thought that was, that was cool, and that was profound that they did that. Like Ernie, who wrote the movie, his mother was dying of cancer. Um, so when he wrote the first draft, it wasn't a period film. He was worried about, he started thinking of his own mortality, saying, am I going to live to see The Phantom Menace? And that's why he started writing the movie. Um, you know, it took us many years to get it made, and it became a period film by the time we made it. But, like, for him, it was a very immediate thing. Like, what, what would happen if I couldn't see this movie, and what lengths would I go? And that was the amazing thing about it was the second you hear that one line pitch in your head, you're like, what would I do? Yeah. And that was the, I you think know the you have to thing. see it. Yeah. yeah. And that was one of the things I fought with the um, studio and distributor about, you know, not, I wasn't even fighting. We were always very uh, amicable and they always said, you gave us the movie you promised. And it was much more like, it was more emotional and stand by me. And they kept pushing me to make it like broader comedy. And I'd have to like, they'll give you an extra day of shooting if you do this and you do a strip scene. I was like, oh God, you know? So, and there's things I probably wouldn't do now, but when you're fighting for days on a movie, like how many hours you have to shoot. And I'm like, well, I'll shoot it. If it's funny, it works cool. And it gives me another day to work on the stuff I need to do. Um, so they were always very, you know, appreciative. Like, you did what you asked, but we're going to try and make it broader. Or we're going to put a crawl on here. They, they wanted a crawl that opened with fanboys with, like, a definition. It was, like, a term for fucking losers who live in their mom's basement. Like, I was like, you immediately alienate everybody if you do that. And they're like, yeah, but everybody who's not will think it's funny. I'm like, yeah, but the people you're, getting to, you're, you're marketing the movie to are the ones coming to it. You're not marketing to the anti-community. Yeah. Like, wake up. Like, no they one, that, change, no, no they one that finds that funny is in the audience. They wanted to change the title of the movie to Trippin' with an apostrophe on the end. <laughs> we did photo shoots with all the characters, like, in the van. And at one point, Linus, he had a, he just had a, a slice of pizza. And he was like, 
<laughs> we're like, where's the pizza? What are you talking? Where's the pizza scene? We're like, well, nerds like pizza. I was like, they're not fucking Ninja Turtles. Like, what is he doing with a slice of pizza? And then like, they're like, he's dying. Let's not people look at his face. So they stuck a Wookiee mask on his head. And <laughs> then, then they wanted to call the movie My Greatest Adventure. I, I, I just, whoever like came up with that idea, I, it's sort of dark, but I would like to see video of them visiting their sick friend in hospital where just before I talk, just put on this helmet for a little bit. I don't want you to bring me down. So, so we went to this. We, we just, we'd like closed the deal on the movie verbally. And they're like, we're going to go meet Harvey at this hotel here in the peninsula in town. And we close this thing. And, and his head of production's there. And like, let's go get food. So we go to this Italian place across the street. And like, we're all excited. And he's like, everything's great, man. The only thing we had to work on is Italian. This. Classic nerds They're like, we got to work on the title. Oh. I was like, the, the title? What's going on here? This is, suddenly went from bad to worse in, in like eight minutes. And then he's like, you know what? We want something catchy. Simple, like wedding crashers. I was like, oh, fanboys. He's like, what? What is that? I don't even know what the, what the what does that mean. Think about it though. Think about it. And then for like two years, I, it was I, them I, saying, I can't, even these compre- terrible- I can't comprehend not knowing what we that a, means. We had a movie poster. I have a hundred bad movie posters. They comp for it. And this is like my my life for like two years was just mitigating the bad. And there's one of like Dan Fogler, and he's like Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise. And there's a, gr- there's a room, it's like the room from Mission Impossible. And he's there like, you know, like this, like, like all stretched out. And he's dressed like a ninja. And all his friends are up in like a little hole in the top looking down, like dressed like ninjas. And you just see their eyes. I was like, what is this? They're like, it doesn't matter. We're just getting people in the theater. Like this is how they, this is the posters they made. They spent money on like graphic artists comping this shit together. It made no sense. Like once they were just, Dan and Jay Baruchel were back to back like ninjas too, another one, and they had like <laughs> lightsabers, but they were just ninjas with this, their eye. I was like, why the nin- like, I guess nerds like ninjas. So pizza and ninjas. It harkens back to cool one of them, oh, one of them had Secret Fortress. One of them had a VHS cam. Oh. Like Linus who was dying. Like It's like he's documenting his life. I'm like, except that's not in the fucking movie. <laughs> why is that on my post? Like there was all these type of things like, one time they're like, we could just shoot a scene for the trailer. They're like, I know you're looking at me like, don't look at me like that. I know you're angry, but just hear us out. They're like, everyone loves animals, right? And I was like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> they're like, what about a monkey? I'm like, okay, a monkey. They're like, at the opening party. And the monkey drinks the Heineken. And the monkey vomits in the fat guy's helmet. And the fat guy puts the helmet <laughs> on his head. Just for the trailer. That's what, that's what they pitched me. Just for the trailer, not for your movie. Like, just bark, monkey barf and a, and a helmet, and you put it on the guy's head, because that's, that's comedy. So, for years, I was just, like, fighting back, like, just the worst ideas. Like, sticking Harry Potter in it, and, like, I was like, what? Are we? It's not a spoof movie. What, what is this, you know? But they were always cool to me. And they were always like, you made the movie you promised, and we're just going to try other things. And ultimately, they gave it back to me, and they, you know with a caveat if you have 36 hours to undo the damage we've done. And, you know, we first tested our movie. It tested like an 86, which is really good. Not amazing. I mean, it's, it's very good in the film world uh, for a movie that's very niche that you made independently for $3.9 that's targeted to, like, a very specific subculture. Um, and I was like, we're never going to attract everybody. It's going to probably alienate, you know, older people or females or people that aren't into sci-fi. It's just a very guy-driven movie. Um, but they're like, well, we want that 90, you know? <laughs> like, all right. So they spent probably like another million and a half 
and just a lot of heartache. Should have just chasing just something. T- taught him the mathematical theory. Then gave it back to up. me. Gave it back to me, but said, "Take our bad version and undo it all in 36 hours. If you want to sleep, you can sleep. If not, it's on you. Just you have 36 hours to get it done. It has to be exactly 90 minutes. So it was like that type of." challenge but thankfully i stayed involved the whole time and knew exactly what i needed to do so it's not the movie necessarily i wanted because there's a better movie there there's one that's a little more human and emotional but it's the the enough of the cancer plot i was allowed to put back in so it was like present the problem was one of the people they had they were working with a very big they were trying to allure a very big uh, comedy director at the time um i probably said this before it's like judd apatow and and you know they're trying to work with him and his producer was producing some of our reshoots. And I think they showed it to him. And he's like, well, cancer's not funny. You know, so then they were like, we got to get a cancer out of this movie. Oh, my God. So that was because his next movie was about, like, someone dying of cancer. Um, so it was like clearing the slate so they could have fresh territory for oh. cancer comedy. It was weird. It was weird. And I was like, really? Like, you sabotage our films? So what he was really saying is cancer twice isn't funny. Yeah, I'd be following your cancer. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants that. Yeah, it's very no, I'm, I'm very proud of the movie, and uh, I'm happy with it, and you know, learned a lot making it. How um, there was a few, you know, light-hearted jabs at the prequels, and I know you're a big defender of the prequels. Yeah, um, just to it keep it honest, I mean, there's fandoms divided, so you kind of have to keep it honest. Like, um, I don't agree with pre- prequel detractors. I can empathize. I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. But I always find it's largely a lack of true understanding of like what George is thinking in a way or what the goal of it is. Like I said, it maybe it doesn't activate in the same emotional way the original trilogy did, but the logic behind it is still very sound on his part. Yeah. I, I don't – look, the stories – maybe the movies aren't what they should be for to people, but the stories – the mythology of them, I really like. Mm. I think there's there's a boldness to what he he did with it, and he didn't go make the movie like he didn't pull fanboys and say what do you want. He went and told the story he wanted to tell that's always been in his head since like 1972 or whatever. Um, so that's I respect that. So when the um, you know the producers were making you change it and stuff, did you ever just dis- that's it? I'm moving to San Francisco and starting a production house. Because <laughs> that has worked out for some. You know, at one point he got on the phone, George got on the phone, I think, and said, um, I'd been in mild communication with Rick McCallum, so he was like an ally, and, and George supported the film from the beginning, and they let me shoot up there. And I think at the end, they were trying to make an R-rated version of our movie, and right away you weren't supposed to have stormtroopers or people doing things and you know drugs or whatever in R-rated situations, and that was one of our agreements. And I think he got on the phone at one point with Harvey and said, I support Kyle's version and only Kyle's version. So it was like, that was like a big blow that he was not going to, you know, helping an independent filmmaker and not going to let them go step on me. Like, you know, he was stepped on by people that just were trying to make money off his creation, you know? So that was cool that he at least had our back, you know, and our core team always stuck together. Our producers, our actors, writers, um, and me, we always were of the same mind of what kind of movie we wanted. So I think that's why people still like, we've talked about doing other stuff with it. But like everyone's still stuck behind it because we were all, you know, true to what we wanted. I um, I saw on your Wikipedia, which Wikipedia, if you don't know, it's it's a very trustworthy source of information. Oh, thoroughly. Yeah. That um, there was a Fanboys 2 listed as a in production. Uh, not in production. No, at one point we were... We were tossing around the idea. I developed a concept and then also worked on it a little bit with Dan Fogler. Um, 
we shot actually like a little bit of what would be the beginning scene of that movie. Uh, we also developed, we're very close to a TV show at one point with everybody back, not or most of the people back, um, but it would have been set now. Um, and they'd be older with kids and families and kids that are into other franchises and comic book stores aren't the okay, cool. you know safe havens they used to be. So it's like now there's people don't revere Star Wars the same. It's like the fandom has totally evolved since what you saw at you know at the in that film in that time period. And they're dealing with like life and families and you know it, it would have been very funny and Adam Goldberg and and Ernie. It, uh, it's something still may happen. It might not be that version, but I'd always wanted to do. A sequel where they're uh, they were trying to get down to um, is before they were you know before, it was going down to, to Revenge of the Sith before it was finished and they had to take a boat because Hutch won't uh, fly like B A Baracus and um, he they're basically stuck on a trek cruise at sea and <laughs> that's their only method of transportation down there and Linus comes back as a spirit when they're high and <laughs> it was funny it was really good um uh, the brother was back and you know he actually won a he won one of those twist off pepsi caps like when a when a when a set visit <laughs> so so chaz was, chaz was getting flown down there like all red carpet everything and they're like slepping down there to uh try and break into the set again to see this before like the whole thing's over now um one one of the sort of themes of the movie is that Luke Skywalker's you know big life achievement was blowing up the Death Star and and sort of one of the things I, that I never agreed with, with that well that in the script I know it's in the script but I, I mean that was the speech I didn't I didn't actually write that speech um, I pushed for uh, the return of the Jedi you know like the scene you know obviously unlocking his father and saving his father I think that's um, Maybe the primer was blowing up the Death Star, it gave him the platform to go on to grow. But I don't, I didn't agree with that in terms of it. But you know, like we were collaborating, and everyone's like, "Well, most people are. It's a little too heady for for that mm. moment, you know." And so we kept it simple there. I, I would have said his life achievement is doing a front flip and catching a lightsaber, but that's just me. It's pretty good. I'm biased. That's pretty good. But what sort of like in your career do you sort of see as that defining thing that you're going towards? Still going towards, um, I, I honestly feel like I barely scratched the surface of what I want to do, so I don't know. I mean, it film, like I paint and I draw, and that stuff is, um, it's mine, you know, like I can do what I want, and I feel like I have a certain degree of expertise in it, and I feel like with film, I've only really barely flexed muscle of what I can do or what I know I should be doing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I have a lot. I write a lot, so I have a lot of things prepped to go. Um, you know, like twenty, thirty projects that are just in various states of development. I wrote four movies last year, and I'm like, I'm just seeing what's. I have a big plan uh, in terms of what I'm doing next and what it's transitioning to, and um, it will be independent. You know, I don't really have any uh, desire for studio system. I've kind of worked out a little bit, and it's not. Um, there's a gluttony to it. You just you don't need all that to make a to make a film. And there's too many um, bad variables, and so I like telling commercial stories, but in uh, in an independent 
format. Like, I don't think all independent movies have to be, like, super independent, like the Sundance Fair, where mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, like, sex changes and, you know, all this. It doesn't have to be that. It's cool. It's great. But I still think independent cinema, you can take independent money and go make maybe something that's more commercial or more lighthearted. It doesn't have to all be the socially challenging drama. And, but a lot of stuff that I'm actually interested in is um, dramas, like real-life stories, uh, biopics, things like that. So it's a mix. You know, I'm writing some heightened genre stuff too, um, sci-fi. So it's it's a, a full spectrum. So I, I really like a little bit of of everything, but I do think that that method of making films is better than what's out there. You know, TV too is interesting. So you made a, a bit of news a couple of months ago with offering to do the Han Solo film for free. Well, for free, it's not. Um, it's you should take that job because it's like you've been invited to represent your country at the Olympics. <laughs> I, I keep hearing stories about directors that are like, "Oh, they're gonna steer clear." That's like, sh shut up. You know what I mean? Like, if someone comes to you, like, then you do it. You know, it's like, oh, you're gonna you're you're going to the World Cup. Like, you don't go maybe. You know, yeah. like you just you go represent your country. Yeah, I, I was you interested because I don't really obviously know how the film industry works that yeah. well, do you know what I mean? But um, when you did that, was it sort of like, maybe this will work no. out? Or? No, no, Harry Knowles was like, something like, why don't you do it? And I was like, yeah, I should, I'd like to. And I, could, I have no fear doing it. I'd probably, I'd feel like I've, I am, I've been born and bred to work in this realm. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm probably not going to have the opportunity to, but whatever. You know, I keep doing like radio dramas or stuff like that and I'll make my movies and then this will be other fandom for me. Um, but I know I could easily step into that with no fear and know exactly what I need to do. It's not like, I think there's, um, I'm glad they've, they've gotten, seems like real fans in these, not pretenders, people looking at this as a great opportunity to have on my resume, you know, Star Wars, it seems like there's legitimately, um, people whose lives have been changed by it in key roles, you know, so that's great and I hope they stick with that tradition. Um. Yeah, Ron Howard's come out and said, you know, he was he saw it opening night. Um, I think he's a great choice for that uh, to fill in there. It's safe, but I think what they needed was safe, considering they've had, you know, the two films have had major issues, you know, behind the scenes and in production. And I don't think you can go to board members and say, oh, we got another problem again. You know, like could be another hundred. You know, they got to go get somebody that's done, you know, twenty movies. This that's Newman's, worked with Lucas. This Newman's a loose cannon. Oh, I'm dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> no, they would no, they would never something they ever consider. You know, they 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 are a huge huge brand, and they're going to go after people that have like ninety million dollar opening weekends, and you know that's that's what they should do. You know, that's that's the nature of the business. I thank you so much for your time and coming down. Of course, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And all our lives are going to end up as a version of fanboys. There's going to be <laughs> Star Wars films. Forever, and we're going to be dying in one of these years. Oh, don't say this. So we've got a gamut of, of films going all over the galaxy in all timelines, but what would you like to see? What do you, what do you hope to see? What are you most looking forward to in Star Wars? I mean, I like the human stories, the character side of it. I like when things are... It's, look, it's it's fantasy, it's space opera, it's on this grand scale, but it's really simple, small, you know, family generational stuff. I think that's at its core. Um, 
there's the spiritual side of it, I think is, is very key. And I thought I was impressed by, I thought Rogue One did a good job and I was impressed by what they did in terms of still having a, a spiritual element to it, but yet there were no, you know, force users or Jedi yet. You could, you know, it was the ramifications of it. It had, you know, um, the vestiges of all this stuff. You know, you go to Jedi and you, you see all these things. So it didn't, they didn't have to be in the movie walking around with lightsabers, uh, manipulating the force, but the hope that they brought and the symbolism of it. I think that's still a core part of, of star Wars and why it works. Um, you know, for me, I wouldn't want to see like a trooper spinoff <laughs> thing with tanks. I mean, I'd go see it. It'd be, I'm sure it'd be cool, but that's not what gets me the most excited. I'd love to see maybe, um, a movie set a thousand years ago with Jedi or 5,000 years in the future would be like a bold place to go. And people have forgotten about the force. You don't even know it's 5,000 years in the future. You think maybe it's way in the past, but there's no guidebook to what it is. There's no one teaching you. There's not even like an old master. Um, I don't know. I wrote this one story I was trying to do as a novel before uh, they reset the EU. And it was kind of like a 10 little Indians, and it was set maybe 300 years prior to Phantom Menace. And I thought it was just a cool time period. And it allowed the Sith tradition to continue. Uh, but it was also it was like a forgotten thing, and it didn't really infringe on anything else in the timeline. It was all characters that you didn't know. The only person who was maybe mentioned was Yoda. So I like time periods like that, that you can go do something that's been completely unmined. Um, I don't know. I'm doing some more, prepping some more uh, radio drama stuff. I want to get Steven Stanton in it. <laughs> I know he's here. <laughs> um, vocal master. Um, so I'm trying to do... Prepping something probably for the next domestic celebration. Hopefully I'll do another one of those maybe another Han Solo thing But I'm also have this great Luke thing. I wanted to do which I think is a Luke story That's not been told but it's kind of essential um, So I mean I just love Star Wars in, in almost any format, you know, but I think it's best suited for cinema You know, so I hope there's more Star Wars in the big screen small screen if they do it correctly You know, I don't I don't know if I want it diluted or done in in like network format uh, I think it's got to be special maybe it's like s a six-part thing it doesn't have to be even Marvel's stuff is too decompressed like 13 episodes for Daredevil is almost too much I feel like that would thrive at eight so if they do Star Wars I hope they keep it contained with with uh, maximum potency you know ladies and gentlemen Kyle Newman <laughs> thanks guys You guys, thank you so much for coming along. If you uh, are keen to hang out, we'll go over to the, the Pikey and, and have a beer and, and hang out if, if that's the sort of thing that you're into. It means a lot coming down, and I really appreciate it. Thank you to uh, Meltdown Comics. Thank you to all the crew at the Nerd Melt Showroom. Give those guys a round of applause. Woo! Thank our guests one more time. And may that force be with you. Thanks so much, you guys. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that just for me what was a super fun live episode with Kyle Newman. I am uh, wrenched at the heart that time ran out for our show when it did, but uh, I'm hoping we can have Kyle back on pretty soon to continue the conversation because 
I had tons more things that I wanted to know from Mr. Newman. But the conversation goes the way the conversation goes. Thanks to everyone that came and checked out the live show. We had uh, a really cool time. We went across the street for a couple of drinks and then ended up at a bunch of us on a big table at, at Norm's for uh, some late night diner action. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was so much fun. If you are a new listener to the show, maybe you heard about Kyle being on and this is your first episode of Steel Wars. Welcome. Thank you so much for checking out my podcast that uh, I'll let you in a little secret. I put all my little heart and effort in. And if you want to hear some more from the Steel Wars podcast, conversations along a similar vein, I've got some suggestions for you for some full-length episodes. You can go to episode 126 with the great Stephen Stanton, the voice behind Admiral Raddus in Rogue One and Grand Moff Tarkin in Rebels and the Clone Wars, as well as AP5 and many voices in the animated Star Wars universe gives us a fascinating chat about his journey to being cast in Rogue One. And Stephen's a great mate and we have a, a really fun conversation. I think you'll like it. Another Star Wars cast member is on episode 134, Mike Quinn. The man behind Neom Numb in both Return of the Jedi, The Force Awakens, and The Last Jedi. And he has some really fun stories from set, including operating Yoda's hand during his final scenes in Return of the Jedi. And one of the more prominent Star Wars fans in the community from the very popular and top shelf full of Sith podcast, Brian Young counsels me on my issues with Star Wars. Brian has a really interesting and positive way at looking at every issue in Star Wars. So that one's a really fun one. And maybe episode 137 with Entertainment Tonight reporter Ashley Crozen, my good buddy. People seem to really enjoy the harrowing story of how maybe Ash ruined my chance to interview Mark Hamill at Star Wars Celebration. So that's a good one. Also, if uh, you're a regular listener and uh, you maybe haven't updated your feed, we just introduced a new type of show to the Steel Wars feed, and that is Struthers Wars. Eric Struthers, great friend of mine who does the Bad Motivators podcast, is hosting a new monthly show on the Steel Wars feed where he interviews Steel Wars listeners about their fandom and a few of their highlights from the podcast. The first episode is up with Rebecca Edwards, who lives in Perth, Australia. She's a long-time listener of the podcast, and it's a really fun trip down memory lane. It has clips from my interview with Leonard Moulton, and Darren Hayes from Savage Garden, as well as uh, the very interesting clip of me watching the Force Awakens teaser for the first time. And you get to learn about Rebecca and her fandom, and, and Struthers is a great host. So check out Struthers Wars. It is up on the feed right now. 
Our next call-in show, if you didn't know, we do a, uh, a call-in show pretty much every week where you guys can just call in like Talkback Radio and we just talk the Star Wars issues of the day. That will be back this weekend. If you're in America, it'll be Friday night. If you're in Australia, it will be Saturday during the day. If you're in the UK or Europe, it will be late Friday night. But the times will be posted over the next couple of days once the guest is secured on SteelWars.com and on our social media, which is at SteelWars. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, please pot it forward and uh, give us a retweet. Don't forget to uh, let Kyle Newman on Twitter know that you uh, enjoyed it, if you did. But I kind of think it'd be hard to be a Star Wars fan and not enjoy what Kyle had to offer. I was, I know I was quite riveted and I had a really good seat for the podcast. A really good seat. Thank you guys so much. And may that force be with you. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetvcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. Also, for more Star Wars podcasting, check out the Making Star Wars Podcast Network at makingstarwars.net. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.